Is the Bible that you hold in your hand missing anything? Is there a book missing? Maybe a chapter? Is there a sequel needed to finish it off? Or to ask it in another way, is the Bible a finished book? Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul said, For you are the household of God. In other words, the church is likened to a building. You are the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 19-21. In other words, the apostles and prophets built the foundation of the redeemed house. And after them, the foundation was completed with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And the church since then has been under construction. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. By revelation, God spoke to the prophets and apostles. By inspiration, he spoke through the prophets and the apostles. And the writer of Hebrews is preparing us and the church to understand that the Bible would be completed with the last words of the last of the apostles when he wrote, In these last days, that is the church age, God has spoken to us in the person of his Son. So over these last 19 centuries, Jesus Christ has been building the superstructure on what was delivered through that apostolic community as the final chapters of his revelation. In other words, for the last 1900 years, we have not been waiting around for another word from God. God has spoken. And it is our delight now to have this all-sufficient word leading and guiding us. The little letter from the Apostle Jude, which appears just before the book of Revelation, points also to the apostles of Jesus Christ as having delivered once for all the content of our faith and gospel. By the way, this is why it was so important for the Apostle Paul to defend his apostleship. Why did he continually do that? Because only the apostles had the right to deliver the final words of Christ. So he's always talking about how he's an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. John is the last living apostle. He is writing the last book in the timeline of progressive revelation. He is providing the last inspired, God-breathed scriptures. What that meant is that John is about to add... With this book of Revelation, the last block to the foundation upon which the church would be built with Christ and none other as the cornerstone. Since Revelation describes the entire sweep of history from the close of the apostolic age all the way to the end, the the eternal state, heaven, hell, any alteration, any addition would be an alteration of Scripture. One New Testament scholar put it this way. Since the book of Revelation projects from John's lifetime all the way into eternity, 
Any type of prophetic utterance would intrude into the domain of this coverage and constitute an addition to or subtraction from the Bible's content. So the final book of the Bible is also the concluding product of New Testament prophecy. It also marks the close of the New Testament since the prophetic gift was the divinely chosen means for communicating the inspired books of the canon of Scripture. So John then, and it is no surprise to come to the end, and we're not quite there yet in case you're wondering, but just about before you get to the end, John adds this warning to would-be prophets would-be individuals who stand and say, I have a word from God, turn them off. I have something to add, turn them off. See, John is giving us a warning that we're going to find is very serious. How serious is it? How important is it to God that his word is now closed? Let's find out. As we rejoin our study in chapter 22 of John's revelation of Christ, And specifically verses 18 and 19. And that's as far as we're going to get today. Okay? (laughs) Look there. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life And from the holy city, which are written about or described in this book. Now that's pretty serious, isn't it? The last apostle, writing the last book in the timeline of inspired scripture, says for this book, and effectively then, since it's the ending, by its placement in history, is the last word from the last apostle. This Biblos, this Bible, this book is closed. In other words... The Bible, while it is an open book, is not an open-ended book. There's a vast difference in that. And this revelation of God clearly comes to an end with a warning label attached. Don't tamper with the text. By the way, this warning is not against misunderstanding the text. Especially the book of Revelation. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad you don't have to understand everything? John isn't saying here, as we've studied prophetic scriptures and eschatology and end times events, he isn't saying in that verse or even implying that that if you end up at the end of the book as a pre-tribulationalist, that is, you believe the rapture is going to happen pre, before the tribulation, that that if that is indeed correct, and I've taught it as such, then, then that's good, you get into heaven. He's not, he's not saying that. He's, he is not saying if you end up at the end of the study as a post-tribulationalist, that is, you believe the church is taken up to be with the Lord after the tribulation, that if you're wrong, you misunderstood it, then you won't go to heaven. That isn't what John is saying. Post-tribulationalists who believe the gospel of Christ get to go to heaven too. In fact, they're going to go earlier than they thought. One more chance for a little dig before we come to the end of the book, okay? That isn't, that isn't what John is, is saying. John isn't talking about misunderstanding prophetic timelines or any verse of the Bible. What he's talking about is, is anyone who would come along and purposefully 
say, you know, I've got something more to add. I've got something that would distort the gospel as we have it here. I have a new word from God which effectively restructures the gospel. It redefines the words of the gospel of Scripture, whether it's Joseph Smith who claimed to be a prophet with another testament of Christ. By the way, that word alone ought to send you running. Which denies the singular embodiment of deity in Christ, which also claims that God was once a man and every man can become a God. This is the restructuring, the redefining of biblical terms. Add to that the uh, Muhammad's Quran, which states that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Judas died while Jesus was taken into heaven. Christ was nothing more or less than the next prophet in line, and there were more after him. He was not God in the flesh, not equal with the Father, and Jesus is not deserving of worship. Now, while Islam and Mormonism are similar, in fact, I'm using those as two examples out of dozens, that align themselves or attempt to align themselves with this book, they are forced, in effect, to redefine this book, reorient the clear meaning of Scripture, and thus they become another gospel. Add to that list Mary Baker Eddy and her key to understanding the Scriptures where she said, I was merely the scribe and God inspired through me. Or the Bhagavad Gita. Or the religious writings of Confucius. Or the tenets of the Buddha, which, by the way, had reached the Mediterranean world around the same time as Paul began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so interesting to know that and read Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, if anybody is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you receive from us, that is the apostolic community, let him be what? Accursed. When Paul was preaching the gospel of, of God coming in the flesh, dying in a singular, unique way as the God-man for the salvation of sinners, and, and resurrecting physically from the grave, authenticating his claim as both Messiah, the predecessor of David, and, and, and the descendant of David. When Paul was preaching that gospel, he may very well have been thinking of the gospel of Buddhism that was already making its rounds. And so it is not surprising then that you get to the end of God's revelation, literally the end of the Biblos, the book, and you discover that the book of Revelation opened with a blessing for those who read it and heed it, and it ends with a warning to not add anything beyond this last period. John delivers two very clear warnings. Let's look at them a little more carefully. The first is a warning against addition. Take a closer look again at verse 18. I testify that to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. In other words, if you think the unbelievers had it bad during the tribulation with plagues, and many of them affecting only the unbelieving community, just as the plagues of Egypt affected um, 
many of them only the Egyptians and not the Israelites. If you think the unbelieving world had it bad when the plagues came during the tribulation, you have no idea the horrors that are in store as God adds upon them to those who add to the scriptures. That's his point. He is obviously referring then to the eternal torments of hell, which would be the addition beyond the horror of the plagues mankind has already suffered. What does John mean? Well, if you think of, of God's revelation as a straight line, we'll let it begin here and go all the way to the ceiling. The ceiling would be the eternal state, and this would be the beginning. You have the, the words of Moses in Genesis, opening the Old Testament with the account of creation, going up and through the prophets and the poets, and then the apostolic community, which then takes you by virtue of their revelation all the way to the eternal state. So you have in this line a continuum of completed revelation that takes you from the very beginning in the first book to the ending, as it were, in the last book. God then has this completed story, so to speak, from the beginning of time to the end of time as we know it. What that means is that if anybody tries to, to, to hop into the line, if anybody wants to say, I'm going to come at the end of the line, I'm going to get at the end of the line, I've got something new. That's the point here. There's nothing missing in the revelation of God. There's no coming sequel to the Bible. We have the completed revelation that takes us from the beginning of creation to the new creation. The church needs to be especially warned of this in any generation, certainly ours. You've probably noticed we're surrounded by a proliferation of, of isms and the winds of doctrine which are sweeping across the face of the earth, most of them based on someone who claims to speak for God, someone who claims to have divine illumination and divine authority. And every one of them that I have ever heard about, every one that I have studied, some at length and some only briefly, they never ever really deny the Bible. They never ever really deny the existence of Jesus Christ. They just redefine the Bible. They just redefine the terms. They just redefine Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And in so doing, they have to do one of two things. They have to either add new revelation to the Bible, or they have to take some away, effectively. Adding or subtracting from the revealed word of God, by the way, brought about the downfall of mankind, did it not? It's still destroying lives today. It's the original deception. The fall of man in the garden did just what John is warning everybody today not to do. Eve added to the words of God, she said as she's talking to Satan. God said we can't even touch it. God didn't say that. Satan says, God didn't mean that. Subtracting. So you have in that original encounter, which led to the downfall of man, addition and subtraction. So here's the warning. Don't add. Don't rewrite. Don't tamper. And don't expect a sequel. In our generation, there's been an explosion of interest 
in other Gospels, they're called, known as the Gnostic Gospels. People want to know why these books were left out of the Bible. It's a fair question. It's a good question. Why were the Gospels of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Bartholomew, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Judas, and about 45 additional writings, why were they left out of the Bible we claim as God's Word? Well, the Gnostic Gospels were written sometime after the Gospels that we hold in our hands. Say them with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gnostic Gospels were accepted by those who denied the doctrine in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John. Many of the Gnostic Gospels were written in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Some as late as the 8th century. And you don't have to know much to know if you read any of them, and I have, that they are obvious counterattacks against the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. These individuals used that word saying that they had special knowledge. It was available to them because of special mystical experiences with God's spirit with visions and revelations. These Gnostic Gospels clearly preached another gospel. For starters, you'll find in these Gnostic Gospels that Jesus was not God incarnate. He wasn't even born of a virgin. He was an interesting man who started a following. So he was. One church leader by the name of Irenaeus Defending the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote in A.D. 180 that the Gnostic Gospel of Judas, one of the earliest, that he knew of it, and he called it fictitious history. Now, even the casual reader would immediately have questions, should you read the Gospel of Judas? Because you'd be struck by the fact that the hero turns out to be not Jesus, but Judas. He was the counselor of Christ. He directed uh, the, 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 the developing tenets of Christianity. He was the hero. The Gnostics further believed that since flesh was evil, God could not become incarnate because he would then become evil. Thus Christ could not be God, very God. The Gnostic writings or Gospels almost all deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Much like Islam to this day, the Gnostics didn't believe that it was Jesus who died on the cross, but a substitute. In fact, these secret Gospels, they're called, and they weren't weren't a secret, okay? They weren't. The church knew of them. They were rejected by the church. These Gnostic Gospels supposedly taught, even though when you study them it's only implied, but skeptics in modern days have taken those implications and built a doctrine around it, implied that because Jesus was fairly close to one of his female disciples named Mary Magdalene, that what he actually had done was marry her. They had a child. After Jesus died, the widow moved to the south of France where she raised their child. Now, they get that out of the Gospel of Philip, who comes the closest to it, saying that Jesus taught her more carefully and loved her more than any other disciple. 
course, this is all the world of skeptics need to let their imaginations go wild and reach all sorts of conclusions that even the Gnostic gospels do not teach. I like the way one evangelical scholar defined these skeptics and the conclusions they draw without any evidence when he wrote this, and I quote, If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, this is, this is deep. You might want to write this down. <laughs> if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it must be a camel in disguise. <laughs> so then, he goes on, since there is no biblical evidence that Jesus was married, multiple biblical indications that he was not married, no extra biblical or historical or even Gnostic texts confirming he was married, he must have been married incognito. Let me encourage you, you don't have to be an expert in Gnostic writings. Just compare whatever it is in your world that you read, see, or hear to the Scriptures. Be like the Bereans, who even after Paul preached, went to the Scriptures to see if those things were so. Don't believe it just because you're seeing it. Compare what you see on the History Channel. By the way, it's a great supporter of Gnosticism. The Animal Planet. I think there's some good stuff on there, but it is, for the most part, a determined proponent of atheistic evolutionism. So if you watch a program... Just, just get, your, get your biblical filter out and, and filter it out. Whether it's the typical magazine, the latest revelation from Nostradamus. Man, he sold a lot of magazines. Just filter it. Well, don't, even, don't buy that, but you know, what I'm, you know what I mean. Or maybe it's a best-selling book by Dan Brown, like The Da Vinci Code or The Lost Symbol. All you have to do is compare what you see and hear and read to the biblical gospels which were held in reverence by the early church because they were from the apostles. They agreed in their claims of who Christ was and they were contrary to the other gospels being preached that they then omitted as spurious as not coming from true and genuine authentic apostles. So why are the Gnostic writings so popular today? Why are they so intriguing? Time magazine, oddly enough, put their finger on it when they wrote. And I quote, these writings, the Gnostic Gospels, are feeding America's ever-sharpening appetite for mystical spirituality. In other words, our culture wants some sort of religious experience outside the restrictions of the Bible. You work around them. You live near them. You talk to them. They will tell you that they are spiritual, but they're not confined to this book, right? I'm just as spiritual as you are, but I'm not stuck in here. Another author said that There's a lot of interest today in these lost gospels. Why? Because many people are simply looking for another way to become a Christian. In other words, I want to be a Christian without having to buy into the claims of Christ. I want to go to heaven, but I don't know about that accountability part to God. 
do these Gospels then, these Gnostic Gospels, ever fit our times or what? Perfectly. Erwin Lutzer wrote not too long ago about hearing a pastor in Chicago telling his large congregation on Christmas Sunday, and I quote his quote of him, What do we do with the account of the shepherds, stars, and wise men? Do we have to believe that these events actually happened? No, we do not have to. What matters is the spirit of Christmas. Luther added, the Gnostics would have loved that. What about best-selling author Dan Brown and others like the, the ones in the latest U.S. News and World Report special edition, 2010 edition given to me last week by one of our flock members came out with this edition, special edition, blazed across the cover, The Secrets of Christianity. What a title, by the way. Man, that'll sell. The Secrets of Christianity. Christianity has secrets? Come on, every one of us knows that Christians can't keep secrets. (laughs) Any better than anybody else. How do we keep these? Well, evidently we did. We kept some really big ones, too. One of the most damaging ones that's now coming out is this secret that's gained popularity in the last few years. That the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were selected at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century by church leaders because they wanted to suppress the truth that Jesus was a mortal man, a married man, And that after his death, the band of disciples were led by his closest disciple and widow, Mary Magdalene. So they needed to keep that down. They needed to keep it away from the public. And that would be a disaster if it ever got out, if it was true, right? So as the Da Vinci Code states, the emperor Constantine commissioned and personally financed a brand new Bible. In the 4th century, it omitted the, the Gnostic Gospels that revealed that Christ was a mortal man with a wife. He called all the bishops to come to this council where, where they voted to keep only the Gospels that characterized Jesus as godlike. And there were only four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the council voted, we'll keep these four and we're going to burn all the others. When the council voted... You need to know this for the exam next week. When they voted, it was a very close vote. It was a cliffhanger. Now what this secret means then, of course, is that the doctrine of Christ's deity was decided upon by a church. It wasn't true, but there was a little job security going on. And we want to keep it. And so we've got to find some writings that seem to prop this thing up that we've created. And that means, of course, that that Christianity, as we understand it from the Scriptures, is really a fourth century creation made up by men who, who voted into existence documents that fabricated a lie that Jesus was godlike. And when they voted, it was very, very close. Now there's a kernel of truth in that supposed secret 
But it's surrounded by more lies than I have time to talk about today, but I'm going to talk about as many as I can. Unfortunately, Dan Brown, if you've read his book, and I have, The Da Vinci Code, begins his book by saying this is the truth. He wrote some interesting fiction, but he's a terrible church historian. He has blinders on. The Council of Nicaea never once, not one word ever came up on the issue of the Gnostic Gospels or the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not why the council was convened. In fact, in all the historical records that we have available to us, and by the way, the idea that the Vatican has secret archives, you can't get to it, guess what? It's online. (laughs) I went to it yesterday just to make sure again. I read the letter, or I looked at the letter from Michelangelo to the Pope. I looked at the document where King Henry wanted to have his marriage and all... All of that, it's, it's all there online. You, you, you simply type Google in your search and, and, and you've got it. This isn't a secret. This isn't suppressed. But what was happening at this council? Not one word about which books were inspired, which books weren't. They didn't even discuss the canon of Scripture. The Council of Nicaea collected 318 bishops to settle the issue of Christ's deity in the year 325 AD. That was the issue. But they convened, and this part's left out to the public, they convened not because they were confused about the deity of Christ, not because they really weren't sure if they were the only ones and can we have a vote to make sure we've got some support. They convened because of the growing popularity of a gifted teacher and communicator by the name of Arius. Arius was teaching that Christ was not fully God, a very God. He was teaching that Christ had a created beginning. He was teaching that Christ was like God the Father, but not equal to, in essence, God the Father. In other words, this was an attack on the triune or the trinity of God. You can easily see, by the way, that Arius would become the forerunner of many isms that persist to this day, simply repackaging the truth or the heresies of Arius. In fact, the Council of Nicaea quickly condemned Arius as a heretic, and then they crafted the Nicaean Creed. And they did it to defend the truth that the church had been believing for the past 250 years as disseminated and taught by the apostolic community. And so they wrote, and I'll read in part some of the creed. Listen carefully. Christ is very God of very God. They wanted to make sure there are no loopholes. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. In other words, he was not made. He made all things. He is then deity. He's equal to the Father And he's the creator of all things. Now, is that something that 318 bishops decided upon 250 years after the apostles wrote their inspired text? Or does that part of the Nicene Creed sound somewhat familiar based on the apostolic teachings? How about Philippians chapter 2, where Paul wrote, Although he, Christ, existed in the form of God, that is the essence of God. He did not regard regard equality with God, that is God the Father, a thing to be grasped, that is held on to, 
But he emptied himself. He gave that right away. Why? So that he could take the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, so that he could become obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God can't die. God taking a body can experience death. That's why God took on a body. And God the Son, who in his essence was equal with God the Father. Does the idea that Christ is the creator of everything that is, was that something that the, all these bishops decided at the Council of Nicaea because that just seems like a good idea? Or does that sound familiar to you? Well, I hope it does, because all the way back to the Colossians, or in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul wrote, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, he says something that has been confusing, so I want to take a moment. He is the firstborn of all creation. That sounds like he had a beginning, doesn't it? The word firstborn, prototokos, means before or above. What they're saying is, or what Paul is saying is, is that Christ is before and above. He is superior to creation. In fact, Christ would have had to have been preexistent to creation, anything that ever was, without a beginning himself, for the next phrase of Paul's writings to make any sense in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, where he says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The council of Nicaea didn't drum it up. The church had been believing this because of the apostolic doctrine that had been handed down. One more thing I'll throw in here. When the council voted, it was not a cliffhanger. As Da Vinci Code Dan Brown said, it wasn't a relatively close vote. What actually happened was that out of 318 bishops, only two had been infected by Arius's false teaching. That's not a cliffhanger. The vote was 316 to 2. Now, in the, in, in the Baptist church, that would be considered unanimous. In fact, that would be considered miraculous. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Council of Nicaea did not decide that Christ was God in the flesh and then hide all of the other Gospels away that proved otherwise as they promoted the only four they could find that supported their decision. The council simply put into creedal form, defending what the apostles had already taught and what the church had already believed and had been teaching for 250 years. What was the council facing? The same thing we are facing today. The same thing every generation faces. The persistent attempts to add to the truth of Scripture. So John comes to the end of his revelation with a serious warning against addition. Don't add to the gospel. You can't get to the end of the line because the end of the line empties into eternity. There's nothing to be added. There is, there is no sequel. Listen, dear flock, be careful if what you're reading is contrary to or in addition to the truth of that which was once delivered 
Jude 1 verse 3. Don't be gullible. Think critically. Be immediately alerted to anyone who says that they believe this book is the word of God, but it is not the last word from God. And I'm going to say that again. Be immediately alerted to anyone who says they believe this book is the word of God, but it is not the last word from God. In every generation there are new versions of Arius' heresy. That God is not Jesus Christ in the flesh. That the apostles are not the final word. That Jesus Christ is a mere mortal but given deity as an honor to his faithful service. That other prophets have equal standing with Jesus Christ. That the apostles need new replacements in every generation. That revelation does not cease with the closing of the Bible. That the church needs new blocks added to its foundation. That Jesus Christ alone is not the only cornerstone. There are others. John adds a warning label against addition, and that includes anyone claiming to be from God or someone even claiming to be God, which the Antichrist will do in the tribulation. There is a second warning. We're not only warned against addition, we're given a severe warning against omission. Look at verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written, which are described in this book. He isn't suggesting someone can lose their salvation. All he's doing is describing someone who will see his opportunity to experience the glory of heaven omitted because he omitted the truth of God. In fact, you can pick up on the play here of the words. The one who adds has plagues added. The one who omits has his opportunity omitted from going to heaven. The tragedy of unbelief then throughout history can be summarized by these two warnings. All the cults and all the isms of our world add to the scriptures. The liberal world of unbelievers take away. From the scriptures, and that's speaking categorically, generally. But according to this text, both are regarded as actions that determine a destiny apart from the glory of God and the beauty of heaven. Listen to the warning. We do not sit as editors and redactors and presume to change or rearrange or edit out. The scriptures, we do not sit in judgment upon this book. This book sits in judgment upon us. Right? We are not the authority over this. This is the the authority over us. And I would hope that if I ever get up here and say, you know, John was great. But I've got a new word for you. Last night God came to me and and I have new revelation. I hope you get up and walk out. Even though you like me so much. (laughs) Even though you like everything about this church. 
You love my short sermons. Even still, you know, you get up and leave. I have simply told you that I am a heretic. I have claimed authority that belongs to God and, and the ending in, in and through the apostolic community alone. Turn off the television too. The next time you hear somebody say, God spoke to me. God's Spirit does speak to us using the words of what God has already spoken. But anybody who says, I've got something new, something to be added, or here's why that can be taken out, run, run, run. The prophets and apostles deliver the Word of God, and John, the last of these, writing the last record of these, closes the book as he adds the last block to the foundation of our faith. Nothing more is to be added. Nothing can be removed. In fact, to remove part of the foundation of Scripture would eventually lead to the collapse of the whole. You need to understand the integrity of Scripture is destroyed in either direction. Either God has left out something man needs to add, or God has put in something man needs to take out. That makes us equal with God. Either way, the integrity of God's character and the sufficiency of Scripture, they're destroyed. That's why the warning of future judgment is given for either adding or omitting the sacred words of God. Both judgments are the same condemnation. They're they're expressed with, with differing effects. You suffer the torments and plagues of hell You are barred from the city of God, the golden city of eternal glory. You remember with the river and the orchards of trees and the glory of God and Christ. All that is forever out of your reach. Which means it is a greater condemnation than Adam and Eve. Who were exiled from the garden and the tree of life. Their disobedience, they added to the words, they subtracted, they denied the words of God, but Adam and Eve were redeemed. The first animal sacrifices took place by the hand of God himself and he clothed Adam and Eve in that act of atonement. But here in Revelation, it's a different ending. At the end of human history as we know it, no one who dies in their unbelief can have their eternal destiny somehow reversed. John informs us in chapter 20, as we've already learned, they're going to be judged and condemned. So it's really clear. Are you getting the picture? Do you want to miss heaven? Do you want to go to hell? Here's how. Go to the last verse of this book. Go to the last word. And after that last word, go to the last period, and you change that period to a comma. And you say, I've got something more to add. Or you take a pair of scissors and you go through the Bible. I don't like that. I don't like that. God didn't say that. God didn't mean that. God didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. Those miracles aren't there. That, that's just made up. Like the Jesus seminar who convened several years ago, their stated purpose was to, quote, change the way people think about Jesus. What they really meant was we don't want people to think about Jesus. So they went into the Bible as scholars into the New Testament. They studied the Gospels in particular to decide what Jesus really said. How's that for a starting point? 
And they ended up, not to anybody's shock or surprise, to come to the end of their studies, they concluded that only 18% of the words ascribed to Christ were actually spoken by him. 82% of the words we think Jesus said he didn't say. They met on a later occasion and dissected the Lord's Prayer, deciding which words in the Lord's prayers Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, which of those words he actually said. And they came to the end of their erudite study and they said, the only words Jesus really said were, Our Father. I'm surprised they agreed on the word father. Now you could just as well insert mother. John delivers the warning so clearly that you've got to play grammatical gymnastics to make the Bible mean something other than what it clearly means. Don't tamper with the truth of God's word. Don't be guilty of addition or omission. And by the way, we as believers, let's make sure we don't live that way. Let's not practically live. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to let that govern my life. I think God should have said this. Or I think he did say that. I can't find it, but I I think he did. Cleanliness is next to godliness, so so take a bath. I, I think he said that. Do that. No, no, no. Don't live that way. One author put it this way with great clarity when he said, It is all or nothing. We're not to add to God's word as though it is insufficient. We're not to take away one word as though it is irrelevant or unreliable or unimportant. There is nothing new. There is nothing less. There is nothing else but the word of God as it is. The last word has been written. The full stop has been added. God has drawn a line at the bottom of the page and that is it. There will be no further disclosure from heaven and there will be no appendix which lets you know that the book of maps is not inspired, okay? It ends at the end of Revelation. There is no sequel in sight. Now, one more thing quickly. There are many liberals today and unbelieving skeptics who would say that the Bible is a collection of books also decided upon by church leaders hundreds of years after they were written. It's another lie. It's a best-selling lie, but it's a lie. The truth is... By the time of Athanasius, who did live in the 4th century, when he wrote a letter to his congregation on Easter, or around the Easter season, he listed all 27 books of the New Testament. And he did that in his letter to them, but 100 years before he wrote the letter, these same 27 letters had been circulating from the apostles, and they had already been called the New Testament for over 100 years. In fact, 200 years earlier from Athanasius' letter, just 80 years after the death of John the Apostle, this church leader named Irenaeus wrote of the apostolic letters that had been circulating. We know them as the New Testament. They were affirmed by the local churches. And I quote, The church, Irenaeus wrote in AD 180, The church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, carefully preserves it. For the churches that have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything differently, nor do those of Spain, nor those in Gaul or France, nor those in Egypt, 
nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central regions of the world, nor will any one of the rulers in local churches, however highly gifted he may be in point of eloquence, teach doctrines different from these. It's going all the way back to 80 years after the time of John's death. The church did not create the Bible. It recognized the Bible. It's like saying a jeweler who, who finds a diamond, he doesn't make it a diamond. He simply affirms what it already is. That's all that the church did as it developed. It affirmed what it already believed and knew to be the truth of God's Word, the divine author And we today stand shoulder to shoulder with these believers down through history. And frankly, I get to this ending here, and I don't know about you, but I'm not frightened by it. I'm not adding. I'm not subtracting. In fact, this is a reminder for us all right here of when you should leave the Scriptures alone. And, and for you as a believer, you delight in this book, right? You're not looking for things to carve out and things to add. You, you defer to its divine authority. You, you defend its author, don't you? you? You want to discover its truths and promises. You, you want to deliver to others its gospel. You want to depend upon it for strength. You want to live so as indeed to call this book a lamp to your feet and a light to your pathway. And so we thank God for this book. We're not waiting for God to speak. God has spoken. A veteran pastor who used to come to our little Bible college where I attended and preach in chapel every so often was known for beginning or ending his sermons with a poem on the Bible made a lasting impact on my spirit. I want to close our study with the same. Here's one of his poems. We've traveled together, my Bible and I, through all kinds of weather with smile or with sigh, in sorrow or sunshine, in tempest or calm, thy friendship unchanging my lamp and my song. We've traveled together, my Bible and I, When life has grown weary and death even nigh, but all through the darkness of mist or of wrong, I found here a solace, a prayer, and a song. So now who shall part us, my Bible and I? Shall isms or schisms or new lights who try? Ah, no, my dear Bible, exponent of light, thou sword of the Spirit, puts error to flight and still through life's journey until my last sigh we'll travel together my Bible and I